If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures, turn to John chapter 18. If you didn't bring a Bible with you tonight, please feel free to use one of the pew Bibles. You'll find John chapter 18 on page 850. Our text tonight is John 18, verses 28 through 40. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. As we reflect on the death of Jesus tonight on this Good Friday, I want us to think through this passage. This passage is part of his trials that led to his crucifixion. And in this passage, we meet three people, or groups of people. We meet the Jewish leaders, we meet Pontius Pilate, and we meet Barabbas. And I want us to think tonight about what each of these characters, through their interactions with Jesus, uh, what each of these characters tells us about Jesus. But before we begin, a word of prayer. Father, we are solemn and yet joyful tonight. Solemn as we reflect on our sin and the fact that our sin caused the Lord Jesus to suffer and die and bear the wrath of God that we deserve. We also rejoice knowing that because of what Christ did on the cross, 
for those of us who trust in him, our sins are paid for. We pray that tonight as we look at this passage that you would allow it to speak to our hearts, that we, your people, would not only know more about you and your word, but also love you more, that we might live for your glory. We pray, Father, for the unbelievers in our midst this evening. Pray that you would open their eyes for the very first time to the reality of their dire situation, that they do need a Savior, and that that Savior is Christ. Pray that you would grant them repentance and faith that they might be saved. Father, use your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here in terms of the context of what's going on, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, that's on Palm Sunday, and the crowds are excited. They're fired up. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The Messiah is here and the people are rejoicing. But while the crowds are excited, the chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish religious establishment, they're not excited one bit. They hate Jesus. Because his teaching goes completely against their system of works righteousness. You got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to follow this rule, and you got to follow that rule if you want to be right with God. That's what they're teaching. And then here comes Jesus talking about grace and forgiveness and believing in him, going completely against what they taught. But they also hate Jesus because he has on many occasions called them out for their hypocrisy and their unrighteousness and ungodliness, and maybe worst of all for them, he's backed up everything he said, everything that he's taught, with these undeniable miracles. And so Jesus threatens their very existence. And so you know the story. They pay one of his disciples, Judas, 30 pieces of silver to betray him. And so fast forward to Thursday night, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knows exactly where he's going to be, and so he leads the soldiers right to Jesus to arrest him. Then Jesus is brought to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, and the whole council gathered together, the Sanhedrin. And he's tried in this trial and sentenced to death. Well, that's where our passage picks it up in verse 28. And so we've already met our first character, or the first group of characters in this passage. It's the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. So it's now early Friday morning. The Jewish leaders bring Jesus to the governor's headquarters. They have already pronounced Jesus guilty in their own court of law, but now they're handing Jesus over to Pilate as the Roman authority, to carry out the punishment. Well, Pilate's not just going to blindly punish someone, and so he asks them about their accusation. What accusation do you bring against this man? Now look at their response. Verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That's an evasive answer. That doesn't answer Pilate's question at all. 
is an answer that shows that they don't really have an answer. Come on, what do you think we would bring an innocent man to you to put him to death? Well, yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. But you see, it's a fitting response. Because the whole process of them trying to make a case against Jesus has been this complete mess. First, they try to get witnesses against Jesus, but they literally can't find two people to get their stories to match. Mark 14, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And so lots of people are accusing him of lots of things, but just a little bit of cross-examination and everything completely falls apart. Luke tells us that one accusation was that he forbade the people from paying taxes. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. But that accusation, I mean, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that's not even close to being true. Right? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so ultimately, the Jewish leaders convict him of being guilty of blasphemy, of making himself equal with God, which of course is a false accusation because he is God, as evidenced by all the miracles that he's done. And so in Jesus' case, his claims to be the Son of God are not blasphemous, they're, they're true. But that's the charge nonetheless. But here's the problem. The problem for the Jewish leaders, well, they know that they can't bring that charge to Pilate. Because you'll remember, Pilate is the Roman governor. And as the Roman governor, he doesn't really care about the Jewish religion. So Pilate's saying, listen, if your beef with him is on religious grounds, it's on theological grounds, you need to deal with that on your own. If he's actually committed a crime against the state, then I can intervene. And so the charge they actually bring to Pilate, what Jesus is formally being accused of here, is that he's a danger to Rome because he claims to be a king. Now, this man is a dangerous insurrectionist. He's a threat to Rome and to Caesar. Now that's totally off base, and Jesus is going to address that in just a few verses, about what it means for him to be king. But for now, let's just think about these Jewish leaders. Let's think about their attempts to pin something on Jesus. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him up to you. They've got nothing. They have no case. Because he literally has done no evil. All they can do is twist his words, create this narrative that Pilate will act upon. And so what do we learn from the Jewish leaders? Well, we see, point number one, the sinlessness of Jesus. The sinlessness of Jesus. That's the consistent testimony of the scriptures. That he was one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. That he was holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, that he fulfilled the law in all of its demands, that he never had once had an unrighteous thought or said an unrighteous word or performed an unrighteous deed. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. That's a glorious truth. And maybe one which we don't give enough thought to when we meditate on the life of Christ. We're, we're amazed by his miracles. We're captivated by his teachings, his parables. But let's never overlook the fact that he did all of that perfectly. The crowd saw everything that he did, and they said, he has done all things well. Well, we, the people of God, should be able to add, he has done all things perfectly, sinlessly. Point number one, the sinlessness of Jesus. And as the Jewish religious leaders found out, if you're going to try to accuse someone who is sinless, you're going to have a hard time. But now in contrast to the sinlessness of Jesus, look at that little detail that John includes about the Jewish leaders that exposes their sinful hearts. Verse 28, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. The idea there is that they could not enter a, a Gentile's house, like the governor's headquarters, because if they did, they would be unclean for a certain period of time. And if they were unclean, well, they wouldn't be able to partake in all of the Passover festivities that were going on. But you see the irony in what they're doing. They are so concerned about maintaining ritual purity the last thing they want to do is be ceremonially unclean for the feasts. And yet at the same time, they are making false accusations against and trying to put to death an innocent man. They are obsessed with being able to partake in the Passover, but they're trying to put to death the spotless lamb to whom the whole ceremony is pointing. You talk about neglecting the weightier matters of the law, a straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Like this is exhibit A. The Jewish leaders show us, point number one, the sinlessness of Jesus, not only through how hard of a time they have in trying to accuse him, but also by betraying their own sinful hypocrisy in the process. That brings us to our second character in the narrative. It's none other than Pontius Pilate. And what can we learn from Pontius Pilate and his interaction with Jesus? Well, why don't we start here? Who was Pontius Pilate? He was the governor of Judea. So he is ruling that region under Rome's ultimate authority, right, under Caesar's ultimate authority from about the year 26 to the year 36. And he usually lived in a town called Caesarea, but during the festival weeks, for example, like the Passover, he would stay in Jerusalem because that's where most of his subjects were in order that he might help to keep the peace 
oversee everything that's going on. Now, Pilate had a reputation for being a cruel and rather harsh leader, kind of given to acts of violence. You can read about that in the beginning of Luke chapter 13. Partly because of that, and partly because of these public acts of idolatry that he would engage in, even in the city of Jerusalem, the Jews didn't like him one bit. The Jews didn't like him, and he didn't like the Jews. Keep that in mind. Going back to John 18. So Pilate hears these accusations from the Jewish leaders. Now he interrogates Jesus himself. Let me get to the bottom of this. And John recounts for us the dialogue. You can see it in verses 33 through 38. Pilate starts by asking him, well, you've been charged, accused, of setting up a, a kingdom against Caesar, calling yourself a king. So are you the king of the Jews? That's the accusation. Are you setting up a kingdom against Rome? But see, Pilate suspects that there's more going on here than meets the eye. And we know that because Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So he knows that something's going on here. But either way, are you the king of the Jews? Is it true? Because if it is, if you are an enemy of the state and a threat to Caesar, well, it's not only my right, but it's my duty to put you to death. Well, Jesus responds, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Like, are you yourself saying that and accusing me of being a threat to Caesar Or are you just asking because that's what the Jewish leaders are accusing me of? Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Kind of a snarky response there. I'm not a Jew. I I don't care about them. But they're the ones. Aren't they your subjects? Your own nation brought you to me. What's going on here? What have you done? Now look at Jesus' response. Verse 36, it's not what Pilate was expecting. Pilate was probably expecting some kind of protest of innocence. After all, Jesus has done nothing wrong. Instead, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. You're right, Pilate. I am a king. But I'm not the kind of king that you're thinking about. You're thinking about the kings of the world. Kings like Caesar. But that's not who I am. Because my kingdom is not of this world. It's of an entirely different nature. If my kingdom were of this world, and Jesus makes a slam dunk argument here, my servants would have been fighting. But Pilate, you can ask any of the soldiers who went to the arrest, Jesus put up no resistance. As a matter of fact, when his disciples tried to fight, put your sword into its sheath, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Just ask Malchus how his ear is doing. 
Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Again, Jesus defines the kind of king that he is, the kind of kingdom that he's establishing. Earlier he said that his kingdom is not of this world, right? That's what the kingdom is not, and here's what the kingdom is. It's the kingdom of truth. It's a kingdom of the true God and the true gospel, right? That's why he was born and came into the world, referring to his incarnation, that he might bear witness to that truth. That truth, that he came to save his people from their sins. And the subjects of that kingdom, well, it's not a nation. It's not a state. It's not an army. It's just those who listen to his voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so his followers are not those who would take up arms in rebellion against Rome. His followers are simply those who would follow the truth. And so our second character, Pontius Pilate, through his interaction with Jesus, well, we see, point number two, the supremacy of Jesus. A supremacy not only in the sense that he's a king, but his whole point here is that he's not just any old king. He's not even on the same plane as the Caesars and the Nebuchadnezzars and the Louis XIVs of the world. He's on a whole different level. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is over this world and all of creation. Or to put it another way, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the king of Psalm 2. Because the kings of the earth, right, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed and all the while, he who sits in the heavens laughs. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Right? That's the king that we're talking about here. That's who Jesus is. And so from Pilate's interaction with Jesus, we learn of point number two, the supremacy of Jesus. But friends, don't miss this. The, the saddest thing about this exchange, because we might, reading about this interaction with Pilate, we might conclude and take away the supremacy of Jesus. But it seems like Pilate has missed that point entirely. Look at verse 38, and this concludes their exchange. Pilate said to him, What is truth? You can almost hear the, the dismissive tone in those words. Pilate's like, I'm not here to talk about truth. I'm just trying to figure out what to do with you so I can keep the peace. I don't have time for that truth nonsense right now. Oh, friends, that's tragic. 
consider that few people in human history have had more one-on-one FaceTime with the truth incarnate than Pilate. But his mind is so fixated on the Jewish crowds and keeping the peace and what's Caesar going to think? Let me come up with a judgment that will satisfy everyone that he simply got no time for the truth. Friends, that serves us as a stark warning, does it not? That simply being near and around the truth is absolutely no guarantee that the cares of this world won't choke it out. If the Jewish leaders demonstrate for us the sinlessness of Jesus, well, Pilate demonstrates for us the supremacy of Jesus But just like the Jewish leaders, they're blind and they're unable to see what they so clearly demonstrate for us, the sinlessness of Jesus. So Pilate is blind and unable to see what he so clearly demonstrates for us, the supremacy of Jesus. That brings us to our third S of the night. This one we see from the character Barabbas. And it's the substitution of Jesus. So Pilate's reached his verdict. He doesn't care to understand all that truth stuff. But this one thing is clear to him, that whatever kind of kingship Jesus is ultimately talking about, that's not the kind of kingship that Rome is worried about. A king with an army and an agenda of insurrection. No, this guy's talking about truth. He's talking about hearing his voice. He's not talking about weapons and assassinations. And so it's clear to Pilate, Jesus is innocent of these charges. I find no fault in this man. But see, Pilate doesn't know what to do. Because if he does what the Jewish leaders want him to do, if he crucifies Jesus, well, that would be completely unjust. Even an unbelieving pagan like Pilate, even someone known for violence, cruelty like Pilate, well, even he's got some conscience, some sense of right and wrong. The other gospel writers add that his wife had some kind of dream about Jesus. And so even she says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. So he doesn't want to crucify him. But on the other hand, if he frees Jesus based on an innocent verdict, well, the Jewish leaders are going to go to Caesar. And they're going to tell Caesar that Pilate exonerated someone who was making himself a king against Caesar. As they say later, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Implied in that is, Pilate, you know exactly what's going to happen to you if Caesar thinks you're opposing him. So you better do what we say. And so Pilate is really stuck between this proverbial rock and this hard place But that's when he gets what he thinks 
is a brilliant idea. I'll let the people choose. Apparently it was a custom back then, kind of like an annual tradition, that during the Passover feast, a Jewish prisoner would be set free, released, given a pardon, kind of as a a goodwill token. So Pilate thinks, aha, this, this is my out. Because even though the Jewish leaders, they hate Jesus so much, well, the crowds like him, right? I remember a couple days ago, Palm Sunday, they, they welcomed him into Jerusalem with the palm branches and all that. So surely, Pilate thinks, surely the crowds will vote to free him. And if the crowds vote to free him, then the Jewish leaders won't be able to say anything about me. I'm just being a man of the people. And Caesar, he can blame the people if he wants. And so Pilate gives the people a choice. Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus or Barabbas? What do we know about Barabbas? Well, verse 40 in our passage tells us, now Barabbas was a robber. Lest you get the impression that he's just like a petty shoplifter or something. Swiping sticks of gum or something. Uh, the, word of, the, the word there for robber, it, it carries a connotation of violence. And so look at Luke twenty three nineteen. This is describing Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Barabbas was a notorious rebel. And so Pontius Pilate figures, if I give the people a choice between Jesus, who really, he's done nothing wrong, and this murderous insurrectionist who is clearly guilty, I mean, surely they would choose to free Jesus, right? Listen to how he phrases their choice in verses 38 and 39. I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? See how he's loading that question? Who do you want me to release? It's the guy who I find no guilt in, right? You want me to release to you the king of the Jews, right? It's like when you want your kids to pick the healthy dessert instead of ice cream. You say, you, you want fruit, right? Because it's, because it's so nutritious and it's good for you, right? You want some fruit, right? Well, not so fast, Pilate. Not only does he misjudge the crowd, but he also doesn't account for the fact that all this time the Jewish leaders are at work amongst them. Matthew 27, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And so the crowds, to Pilate's surprise, they ask for Barabbas. And then Matthew continues with this detailed account of that exchange. The governor again said to them, this is verse 21 of Matthew 27, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You can almost hear the the exasperation in his voice. Why? Seriously? You, You want Barabbas? I don't get it. What has Jesus done to deserve death? So Pilate's plan backfires. Instead of the innocent, sinless Jesus going free, the murderous, guilty Barabbas is set free. And so Jesus is falsely accused of being an insurrectionist against Rome and against Caesar. He is put to death instead of a man who is actually guilty of being an insurrectionist against Rome and against Caesar. And so it's Jesus who is eventually crucified between two robbers, probably two of Barabbas' partners, because you'll remember that Barabbas was a robber. Same word is used to describe all three of them. And so really, it should have been Barabbas in the middle. But instead, it's Jesus who was crucified with the robbers, even though Barabbas was a robber. Friends, in that tragic miscarriage of justice, we are given this beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of, point number three, the substitution of Jesus. Friends, the Bible says that we have sinned. All of us have sinned against a holy God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We might not be robbers like Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. We've all broken God's holy law through our sin. And since the wages of sin is death, right? The just punishment for sin is death. So we all deserve to die. Not just physically, but ultimately, eternally. And we deserve to go to hell where we will suffer the wrath of God eternally for our sins against him. But that's why the cross of Christ, right, that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago on Good Friday, that's why the cross of Christ is such a wonderful truth for us. Because on that cross, Jesus dies as our substitute. In this narrative, Jesus, though innocent, he dies instead of the guilty robber, Barabbas. Well, in the gospel, Jesus, though innocent, remember the sinlessness of Jesus, he dies instead of guilty sinners like you and me. And it's not just that Jesus was crucified. Because if you think about it, lots of people were crucified by the Romans, like those two robbers next to Jesus. It's not just that he was crucified. It's that in being crucified, he takes upon himself all of the sins of all of his people and the wrath of God that those sins deserve is poured out on Christ. And so he, as an eternal being, suffers the eternal wrath that we deserve in his body on that tree. And substitution... Well, just like Barabbas in this narrative, 
is set free. So we who trust in Christ are set free. Free because we are forgiven. No longer do we have our debt of sin because it is fully paid for by Christ on the cross. Free because we now no longer have death and hell to fear because death now ushers in for the believer an eternity with Christ. Free because we now have his perfect righteousness given to us instead. And so we are perfect in God's eyes. And free, of course, because he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. But he rose again victoriously that following Sunday, showing that for all who believe in him, we too will live forever. The doctrine of substitution. It's Jesus in our place. Maybe Peter says it best in 1 Peter 3. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. Such a clear picture of this here. Jesus for Barabbas, the righteous for the unrighteous. But that's just a picture. The realities in the cross. Jesus for sinners like you and me, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. And so I tell all of you who are not Christians tonight, you're here because it's a Good Friday service, but you've never placed your trust in Christ. I tell you that you can have this salvation. This substitution that we've been talking about can be a reality for you. You can know what it means for Jesus to have died for your sin. If you would believe this gospel, place your trust in Christ. Don't leave this place tonight before you talk to somebody about what it means for you to be saved. Point number three, the substitution of Jesus. And so in this narrative, we've met three characters, the Jewish leaders, and we see through them the sinlessness of Jesus, Governor Pontius Pilate, and we see through him the supremacy of Jesus, and Barabbas, the robber, what we see through him, the substitution of Jesus. But before we close, well, there's one more character in this narrative And of course, I'm referring to Jesus himself. I think it's easy to read a narrative like this and perhaps think that Jesus is not really doing anything. He seems to be passive in all that's happening, whether it's being accused by the Jews or being questioned by Pilate or being rejected in this vote against Barabbas. Kind of like all of this has been quite out of his control. But lest we make that mistake, let's finish by considering our last S, the sovereignty of Jesus. And by sovereignty, I'm referring to the fact that Jesus rules and reigns over all things, even the very events that lead to his death. 
Because in one sense, it is correct to say that Jesus is the victim of unjust proceedings here. Like he is the victim of the Jewish leader's false accusations. And he is the victim of Pontius Pilate's indecision. And he is the victim of the crowds unrighteously choosing Barabbas to go free instead of him. Friends, Jesus is no helpless and tragic victim here. He is the sovereign and willing victim who superintends everything unjust that is happening to him. Like, yes, Jesus was killed, but at the same time, we know that nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. How do we see that in this narrative Well, go back with me all the way to the beginning. You remember the Jewish leaders. Verse 31, Pilate tells them to judge Jesus on their own. Like, you all decided he was guilty by yourselves, by your own standards, so why don't you judge him? Well, why do I have to get involved? Look at their response. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Uh, Technically, legally speaking, yeah, that that is true. Uh, The Jews didn't have any authority themselves under Roman occupation to carry out capital punishment. And that was a, a power and authority that was reserved for Rome. But at the same time, you read through the New Testament, you'll notice several occasions in which well, they really weren't that principled. You remember Luke 4? We covered this a couple of months ago. They try to throw Jesus off a cliff because of what he's teaching. How about John chapter 8? Verses 31 and following, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. We are going to stone you. Certainly not worried about Roman law then. And how about the book of Acts? It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Well, tell that to Stephen. Their convictions about obeying Roman law certainly didn't stop them then from stoning Stephen to death. And Rome, it seems, was happy to look the other way. So here's the question. Why, now, all of a sudden, are the Jewish leaders so principled about following Roman law? Well, maybe it's because they didn't want Jesus to become this kind of heroic martyr who was killed by the religious establishment. No, they want him to be executed as a criminal by the state so that he might not garner some kind of following after he dies. Or maybe it's that the Jewish leaders wanted him to be crucified because of what the Old Testament says about a hanged man being cursed by God. They wanted him to be under a curse. Maybe those things were going through their minds. But we really don't have to speculate as to the ultimate reason because John clearly tells us 
John tells us why the Jews didn't just stone him to death for blasphemy, but instead handed him over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. John tells us why this trial proceeds exactly as it does. Like why injustice seems to carry the day, leading to Jesus being nailed on a cross. John tells us the ultimate reason for all of that. Look at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. By what kind of death he was going to die, right? Referring to his crucifixion. Jesus said that he would be crucified. And as the sovereign one who brings everything to pass, well, that's exactly what happened. And so the Jewish leaders handed him over to Pilate in part so that passages like Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and following could be fulfilled where Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Or how about John chapter 12? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Here it is again. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Referring to his crucifixion. So friends, everything about the death of Christ, including the exact means of death, death on a cross, everything was exactly according to the perfect plan of the Godhead. Acts 4. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and, here he is, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Or as John puts it, this was to fulfill the word that, John, that Jesus had spoken. And so why, why is this entire narrative so unjust. Why did the Jewish leaders hand the sinless Jesus over to be crucified? Why doesn't Pilate stick with his conviction that Jesus was innocent and instead give in to the pressure of the crowds? And why do the crowds choose guilty Barabbas? Barabbas was a robber. Why did they choose him to be set free instead of innocent Jesus? Well, there's many explanations for all of those questions, but ultimately, right, this passage tells us, and the entire Bible tells us, that it was all according to the sovereign plan of God. And so friends, don't ever view Good Friday as simply a tragedy of injustice, although there was much injustice. 
uh, was something much, much greater, right? It was the good and glorious plan of an all-wise God to save sinners like me and like you that was perfectly executed in all of its details so that we sinners might be made right with a holy God. Father, we give you praise for the simple and yet inestimably glorious truth that Christ died for our sins. Father, we pray that you would impress that truth deep in our hearts that we might see the glories of the gospel and rejoice in your son, in his death and his resurrection for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.